The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Today marks the last Sunday of the church year, which also means that next Sunday is the first Sunday of the new church year and the beginning of Advent. But why do we have a church year? As one of my children lamented, so there's a regular year, a school year, and a church year? That's a bit much. Of course, it would be no surprise to learn that many Christians in America are ignorant of the origins of the church year. They don't know that it comes to us from the Old Testament, from the yearly feasts and festivals that formed the liturgical life of the temple and anticipated the coming of the Messiah. God's people have always been liturgical and have always enjoyed a rich liturgical calendar centered on the Messiah. From this, we can see how strange American Protestantism is. It has largely embraced the world's calendar as its own. Not unlike Esau, selling its birthright for a bowl full of instant gratification. Truly the church of what's happening now, only what's happening now is generally terrible. As the American church has lost Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, so it has lost a calendar that is centered on him. The church here, if we oversimplify a bit, can be divided in two. The first half of the church here, beginning next Sunday, is focused on the life of Christ, from his being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, to his death and resurrection, his ascension and Pentecost. The second half of the church here is focused on the teaching of Jesus. And as the church year now draws to a close, there is additional emphasis put on the close of this age and the return of our Lord. What could be better than the Christian church keeping Christ as the center of all things, including her calendar? that all our doings and our lives might be ordered in him. If the seasons of this fallen world are governed by the S-U-N, then the seasons of the church are governed by the S-O-N. This is also why, in the book of Revelation, the Son is replaced with Christ, no longer do we live by this world's Son. Christ is our Son. His light, His warmth shine upon us, blotting out all our sins and filling us with light and life. All things, all days, all seasons, all years are governed by Him. In one of his psalms, King David, shows how the S-U-N is but a type and foreshadowing of the S-O-N. He writes, In the heavens God hath set a tabernacle for the sun, 
which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And of course, we know who that bridegroom ultimately is. Of all that enters into our minds when we hear talk of the so-called end times, it is perhaps a wedding that should come into our minds first. Our Lord preaches that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And of course, this goes much deeper than mere metaphor. There is a sense in which the entire story of our cosmos is a love story culminating in a wedding. Why did God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, make a church? Again, the book of Revelation shows us that the Father creates and gives the church to be the bride of his Son. And the end of this age culminates precisely in a marriage. The dwelling place of God is with man. And the Son has not only saved his beloved bride, he has washed us from every spot and stain from every sin and every defilement. The only alternative is to ruin the love story, to reject his love, and to call him a liar. But if you're unwilling to call him a liar, then you must know that every spot and blemish, every last sin and defilement of yours has in fact been washed away. And he does, in fact, love you more deeply than any earthly marriage could ever show. Indeed, it is both the good aspects of marriage and the bad, even divorce itself, that draw our attention to the one who is the true bridegroom and to that true wedding which is to come to our Lord Jesus, the only one with perfect forgiveness, perfect love, and perfect faithfulness. Thus, our Lord's sermon about the coming bridegroom and the ten virgins who hope to attend the marriage feast is something much greater than mere metaphor. What do we see? While our attention is so often drawn to the oil, and what that might mean, that some of these virgins possess the oil and some do not, there is nonetheless a much more fundamental point that our Lord makes. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. In the words of that great American theologian, Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. Whether a virgin has oil or not is simply the consequence of whether she is wise or not. Indeed, our Lord even uses the language of mori, from which we get the word moron. 
The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were morons. I'm tempted to simply title this homily, Don't Be a Moron. But instead, I've titled it, Watch for the Bridegroom. The foolish virgins, because they are foolish, do not think ahead. They are not prepared for the bridegroom coming. Thus, they are unable to follow him into the marriage feast. They are shut out. The bridegroom says that he knows them not. Whatever it is that the oil represents, or perhaps more accurately, whatever a given preacher wants the oil to represent, the more fundamental point is simply that not everyone in the church is the church. Not every virgin is wise. Not every lamp has oil. We mustn't be surprised by these things. But we must, as our Lord says, watch, for we know neither the day nor the hour of his arrival. The threat of missing out is real. The wise know this. The foolish do not. The wise also know the goodness of the bridegroom. We know that it is he who has laid down his own life for us, he who has loved us more than we love ourselves. We know that it is his hands and feet, his head and side, which bear the scars of his love, each one a promise that he will never forsake us. We know what the scriptures say about him. Even if we have been faithless, he remains faithful. Even if we have been unrighteous, the righteousness he freely gives us is all-sufficient. Even if we have been ungodly, it is he who justifies the ungodly. If there is good we have failed to do and evil that we have kept on doing, it is he who comes to save us from these bodies of death. Indeed, we enter even now into a foretaste of his goodness and of his joy. It is a joy even now deeper than all sorrows. We receive from him his cup, the forgiveness of all our sins, a cup of joy, Joy that will expand from here until the end of the age. We who receive him readily at this table will also receive him readily when he comes. For the same bridegroom who will come to us on the last day is the same bridegroom who comes to us this day. And the joy that he gives now is but a foretaste of the feast of joy which is soon to come. So let us indeed watch as our Lord has admonished us. For we do not know the day or the hour when our bridegroom will come, and with him will come all manner of relief, 
all manner of blessing, all manner of satisfaction. Let us not despair of ourselves. Let us not despair of the world. We are his, and the world is his also. The light of his love is indeed about to make all things new. Watch with eager expectation, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the bridegroom will come and blessedness and joy will fill all things. It is exactly as our intro, as the front of your service folder says. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.